But this chapter is just like, you're a brick. Keep Kettle of fish. Kettle of fish. Oi, Empress of Golniach. Hello, and welcome to the eighth official episode of our podcast, Chronically Narnia. Uh, we are coming to you today with episode eight, uh, titled The Fight at the Lamppost. Uh, that's what the chapter's called. I don't know what the episode's going to be called yet. Well, the, 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 the episode title is also the chapter title. That's the naming convention we've used. Is it? Yeah, it, it, it is that naming convention. Uh, I am Chris... And I am Kristen. We didn't come up with fun names for this one like we usually do, but... Sorry. Uh, You're Strawberry. <laughs> I was going to be the cabbie. Okay. You can be Strawberry. Strawberry's a boy horse. <laughs> okay, fine. I can be Strawberry. But Strawberry is also very thirsty and doesn't get to drink, so I relate on like a spiritual <laughs> level. Uh-huh. And as we're getting started, we are experiencing high winds today, so if you hear any rattling, it's not just Chris moving in his chair and squeaking, it is probably the window. It's trying to attack our house. Oh no! (sighs) Not the wind! It's huffing and puffing and trying to blow us down, but uh, hopefully we can get through this recording. Alright, so let's talk about the fight at the lamppost. Hyphenated word. Which I feel like is a misnomer because uh, the the quote-unquote actual fight at the lamppost is maybe a paragraph of actual exposition, and that's not really the main focus of this chapter. And it started in the last chapter. Yeah. Like, that's really just the transition moment from Uh chapter 7 to chapter 8 is this conflict starting at the lamppost. Yeah. And the only fight that happens is Jadis knocks two police officers over the head and kicks Diggory in the mouth. Yeah. Like, that's the extent of the fighting. One person throws a rock at Jadis. Yeah. It was, you know, epic battle this happened. Um, so, before we get into what the chapter is actually about, why don't we go ahead and summarize it? Uh, Kristen, you have your collection of three to five sentences, which is going to uh, tell us the story of this chapter in a succinct way. Uh, sure thing. I really do feel like it's uh, unnecessary for us to say three to five sentences. We could just say five sentences well, because I don't think either of us has ever chosen less than five. Yeah, but you get mad at me if I choose six, so. Yes, but I think if we <laughs> called it a five-sentence okay. summary. We can, we can nail it down as five. All right. All right. Dramatic changes to our format. Yep. So here is my five-sentence summary of Chapter 8, The Fight at the Lamppost. I'm really curious about your sentences. He made a third grab, caught the heel, held on like grim death, shouting to Polly, Go! Then, oh, thank goodness. As soon as the witch saw that she was once more in the wood, she turned pale and bent down till her face touched the mane of the horse. Instead... The whole party found themselves sinking into darkness. If you had seen and heard it as Diggory did, you would have felt quite certain that it was the stars themselves which were singing and that it was the first voice, the deep one, which had made them appear and made them sing. It was a lion. Hmm. Okay, yeah. Uh, We did choose one sentence uh, in common. The first one? Uh, yes. Oh, figured. It's a, it's a really good sentence. I like the way that one's put together. So what's what's your idea here? Like, you basically... I mean, my goal here was to, like, walk through the main elements of the chapter. Mm-hmm. They were... Diggory successfully got a hold of the witch to get her back to the wood between the worlds. At which point... <laughs> they, um discovered that it was not only the witch that had come, but the horse, the cabbie, Uncle Andrew, Polly, and Diggory had all come with the witch to the wood between the world. Yeah. And... Which we'll get into that, but let me do my summary. Well, then don't ask me to reflect on mine. Do yours first. Okay. Then ask questions. Okay. So here is mine. Now's my chance, thought Diggory. He made a third grab, caught the heel, held on, like grim death... Shouting to Polly, go, then. Oh, thank goodness. So the horse never got his drink. 
Now, my boy, slip on the ring and let's be off. Hold your noise, everyone, said the cabbie. I want to listen to the music. Uh, <laughs> for some reason, my cabbie is Russian in this uh, <laughs> in this one. Uh, Hold your horses. <laughs> I've been anyway. Um, yeah, I've been I've been running a D and D game for several months now, where most of my NPCs are Russian. So that's my uh, accent that I just slip into now. Aren't they supposed to be Transylvanian? Yeah, Eastern Bloc. It's all kind of the same. Into <laughs> no, it's it. not. <laughs> so uh, I've just offended our Polish listeners. I'm sorry. <laughs> so I um I went through and kind of focused like the main points of action in this. They're at the lamppost. Diggory gets a hold of her, transports them to the wood, and then they go into another pool and everyone ends up getting transported to an empty world that is nothing. And then things start to come into existence in this new world, Mm -hmm. the stars. But it's all through singing, which I think is interesting because when they get there, the cabbie, in order to comfort himself, begins singing a hymn. Yeah. And shortly thereafter, there is a singing that happens and kind of births the stars yeah. and the sun. You're, you're, getting, you're getting so far ahead right now. All right. Let's... I'm telling you <laughs> what I was trying yeah. to do with my plot summary, which yeah. you asked me before you gave yours. So I'm just going through the elements of Accurate. what I was reflecting on. Okay. Thank you. Uh, so let's, let's go ahead and talk about the... The title of the chapter, The Fight at the Lamppost. Let's talk about The Fight at the Lamppost. We uh, did already. I, yep. I told you, I told everybody every element of the fight. Next. <laughs> Is there anything to be said about this? I mean, other than the fact that it's an extension of the comical nature of the last chapter. Uh, and, you know, we have, you know, Jada's bonking policemen on the heads and somebody throws a brick and somebody yells out, get the military. Uh and, you know, uh, the horse is still angry. I think it's interesting that the people are, like, openly mocking Jadis. Uh-huh. And she has this moment of, like, crestfallenness where she she goes to receive their praise, then realizes that they're mocking her. Mm-hmm. And just, oh, like, starts threatening them with things that they're not going to understand as threats. Uh-huh. Where she's like, I've destroyed all of these places. I've destroyed Charn and Felinda or so- Sorless and Bramondin. And like... That's a list of my exes, but go on. But like none of these are... <laughs> they're a list of Jadis's exes. Uh-huh. And she killed them all. Uh-huh. Um... And so she's threatening them with some with things that she knows they don't understand. Because yeah. she knows that none of these people know where Charn is or what Charn is. She knows that. Which can make the argument that she's not doing it for them uh, and she's doing it for herself. And this is her talking herself up and being like, no, I still got this. We're good. You know, that's... I mean... As she's trying to, like, recover her pride from being mocked by people that she's, like, calling dogs, maybe. Uh-huh. But I also feel like Jadis is, I don't know, I feel like she's mostly talking to herself through all of this. Like, when we first meet her in Charn and she's taking the children out to see the city. Uh-huh. And she takes them past things and she says, those are the torture chambers and this was that and... She's just talking to herself. Like, she doesn't have to explain any of this to the kids. Yeah. So, yeah, no, that's fair. That's fair. That's not something I'd really considered. Mm-hmm. But there is textual evidence that she just talks to herself all the time. Uh, so before we move on to the, the from the fight at the lamppost, which you very, you know, clearly described, and we don't need to go through every element, there are several uh, expressions and things that are said in this couple couple paragraphs that I wanted to touch on for... for the people who didn't want to do the research, and there's like some some old timey things, idioms, uh, idioms even is the word I was looking for. Welcome to do. Idiom Corner. We so, have stepped into the idiom pool, 
and we are now here to discuss idioms so, so found no, within the chapter. So, number one, uh, somebody is kind of calling back at her when she's kind of declaring herself as the empress, and I believe it's the cabbie who... Uh, I don't think it's the cabbie because it just says a person. A person who yeah. is who is uh, also has a Cockney accent and says, Oi, Empress of Golniach! And I was uh, intrigued by what that was. And if you look into... Colony H. What? Colony H. Colony Hatch. Colony Hatch. C-O-L-N-E-Y apostrophe A-T-C-H. Colony Hatch. But like... The apostrophe is replacing an H, yes. right? Yes. So it's Hatch. Yes. Okay. Uh, and Colony Hatch is a hamlet in the English countryside, which was a colloquial term used to refer to Frere and Hospital, which was an insane asylum in Victorian England. Oh, so they're saying that she's the empress of an insane asylum? Yes. That's wonderful. <laughs> I love so it. That's the, that is the context of that line. Um, I had an interesting one. Mm-hmm. Um, I got really confused reading the chapter uh, when Polly shows up and Diggory says, you are a brick. Uh-huh. And I wrote down in my notes, good or bad? <laughs> and so when I looked this up, I found the exact same question being asked by the internet. I found more than one listing of people being like, I referred to someone at work today as a brick and I need I need someone to prove to them that's a good thing because they keep thinking I'm insulting them. Well, which is the way I would use it. Like if I was calling somebody a brick, that's... You're calling them adult. You're yeah. calling them dumb. Uh-huh. Yes. See, but a brick is a stable piece of matter that you build a house or a wall with. Yes. And in the uh, Facts on File Wikipedia of Words and Phrase Origins, 4th edition, Robert Hendricks describes the expression brick of a man as a good, solid, substantial person that you can rely on. The expression is said to have originated with King Lycurgus of Sparta, who was questioned about the absence of defensive walls around the city. There are Sparta's walls, he replied, pointing to his soldiers, and every man is a brick. So I found that interesting because, like, contextually today, like, reading it, I'm like, well, what is it? Is it good or bad? But this is still an expression that's used to this day and Mm -hmm. is believed to have originated in Sparta. So we're talking about a multi-thousand-year-old expression. Uh That we still, <laughs> I still have to look up and be like, is this good or bad? Yeah. <laughs> because of the the culture specific nature of it. Yeah. So I found that really interesting because I immediately went, is this good or bad that he's calling her a brick? Like, is he like, yeah. why are you showing up now, you idiot? Or is he like, thank goodness you're here. You're going to save me. Uh-huh. <laughs> like, but... I mean, even in context, he's like, you are a brick. Mm-hmm. You're going to have to manage the rings. So, like, it does kind of make sense that he's saying a good thing, but I still had to double check. There you go. Uh, I found that as well, and I thought it was uh, interesting. Some some good context there. Uh, the one other thing I wanted to throw out there was in this passage. It said she uh, takes a bar off of a lamppost and snaps iron like barley sugar. Who is she? Jadis. Yep, that, I, know. I, I mean, <laughs> I know the other super strong people in this chapter. I know. <laughs> but we were just talking about Polly being a brick. Uh-huh. And, and a brick might be able to take the crossbar <laughs> off of a, yeah. you know, lamppost. Uh, barley sugar, type of boiled candy. Kind of like, uh, kind of like a caramel in consistency. But, uh, yeah, it's a very old type of boiled treat. Pop. That apparently can snap. Okay. So, there you go. It sounded interesting, and I'd like to try some whenever we, you know, hop across the pond, if we can find it. Hop, skip, and a jump? It's a thing they still sell. And I had one more idiom I wanted to point out. Ooh, yes, go on. Um, This is one that you and I uh, disagreed on the meaning of initially. Okay. Um, This is a pretty kettle of fish. Uh Uh-huh. This this chapter is super idiomatically (laughs) dense. It is. Like, all... Of all of the chapters up till now, we've had some, like, random expressions. Uh Uh-huh. But this chapter is just like, you're a brick. 
all of these different things. Like just keep kettle popping. Of fish. Kettle of fish. Um, and so there's a lot of idioms in this chapter. This is a pretty kettle of fish. Now you said you've heard this expression used in the South in America. Yes. In order to, uh, what did you say it was? Uh, it's an expression that refers to, uh, uh, something that's kind of beside the point of what's being talked about and the saying like, that's, that's a whole nother kettle of fish. Uh, another, is, isn't it? Yeah. Is, is, well, not, that's not the way you'd say it in the South, but yeah. Uh, it referring to something that's, you know, a different, uh, discussion entirely. Oh, yeah. so, okay. So like, just leave that alone. Uh, that's, that's a kind, different issue entirely. Kind of similar to like can of worms. Oh, okay. Like. But a can of worms is something that, like, mm-hmm. you don't want to open a can of worms because it becomes overwhelming. Yeah. Like, so you're saying, I don't want to talk about that because it's another kettle of fish and yeah. I've got my own kettle yeah. of fish to deal with yeah. right now? Vaguely similar, yeah. Okay. Well, according to the Oxford Dictionary, the I, the expression of a fine kettle of fish or a pretty kettle of fish is actually an expression that means an awkward state of affairs. Mm -hmm. So not necessarily an overwhelming thing, but just awkward. That's awkward. Uh Um, We also had a moment of sarcasm in idioms um, from Diggory where he said something, this was a a fine picnic. Uh And that's a sarcastic expression in the same way that we say, you know, like, something would be like easy as a picnic is like can be like picnic can be used to describe something that's really easy or simple Uh and then he's just saying oh well this is a fine picnic in a sarcastic way Mm -hmm. to be like well (laughs) we're not getting out of this as easy as we thought yeah so yeah uh also is there more (laughs) there's one more Uh um when Jadis is bonking uh, police officers on the head, uh-huh. uh, one of them is described as falling like a nine pin. Which I didn't think was we, we had to go into because I just thought, you know, that's a bowling thing. That's yeah, but a, bowling has ten pins. Nine pin is a separate game. Yes, but in bowling, every pin has a number. So I just thought so there it's is, the ninth pin. Okay, so, well, <sighs> in actuality, the expression is used to describe... Uh, a thing that has befallen multiple people. Okay. Because more than one pin tends to fall at a time. Oh. And so if you fall like nine pins, or like a nine pin, mm-hmm. you are falling like one of the pins in the game of nine pin. Okay. And you can, your calamity can affect other people. Okay. And so you falling could knock over another person. Like when something befalls you, as a nine pin, it will also affect other people. Mm-hmm. So I, I I found it to be an interesting expression. Oh, all right. Well, that's been Idiom Corner. Uh, we've talked about all the interesting turns of phrase used in this chapter. Uh, now let's talk about storylines. So we had the fight at the lamppost. Then we have this whole chain of people that finds themselves transported to the wood between worlds. Uh, well, people and a horse. I don't yes. want to ignore strawberry here. Don't be species. <laughs> uh, and so this is a, a plot development that tells us apparently there's no real limit to how many people you can transport with the ring system. like Or creatures, I guess. Yeah, these chains of people. Yeah. Uh, and we have this whole huge thing where it's not just Polly and Diggory and Jadis who go to the Wood Between Worlds, but we also have the cabbie, and we have Strawberry the horse, and we have Uncle Andrew for some reason. Where, And I feel like a lot of this is implied uh, because nowhere during the fight at the lamppost does it say, hey, Uncle Andrew was also grabbing onto Diggory, or, you know, the cabbie was touching the horse, and this is all kind of implied that they all ended up there because everybody was touching each other at the same time. It says like seven times that the cabbie was touching the horse. Okay, well, I misread that entirely and I can't pay attention to things. <laughs> but at no, I, I know for a fact that at no point does it say that Uncle Andrew was touching anybody. Oh, yeah. Yeah, no, I, I agree. The book doesn't specifically mention it. Obviously, he was touching somebody. And as they're in the transportation process... 
Polly is yelling out about someone pushing on her. Yeah. And she is further from, we've got Cabby touching horse, touching witch, touching Diggory, touching Polly. So the only person who could be pushing against Polly is Diggory or Uncle Andrew. Uh-huh. So this, her implying that someone else, and this is a second time in which Polly is the one that got caught by someone as an unexpected follower. Uh-huh. The queen grabbed Polly uh, and came through into the wood between the worlds from Charn. Yes. Because they tried to get away from her, use their rings, and pulled the queen back with them by her holding on to Polly. And she was yelling in the transportation process, let go of my hair. Why are you pulling my hair? Uh-huh. Or whatever it was. And then as they come out of the pool here, as they're transporting, she's saying, stop shoving me. Uh-huh. And we suddenly have them there with an extra person that could only have been touching her yeah. and was shoving her. So she has, poor thing, is the one who is like accidentally bringing people along with her. She is the catalyst to this in the same way that she's the catalyst to Diggory going into the wrong door. Yes. Where they, where we started this as they're exploring and adventuring. She's like, hey, I've got access to this tunnel uh-huh. that can get us to a new adventure place. And I'm going to take you with me. And then we have access to this transportation from Charn where she accidentally brings the queen along. And then we have this access from London to the Wood Between the Worlds where she accidentally brings Uncle Andrew along. Uh So we have this series of events in which Polly is the catalyst to someone maybe unwittingly joining or um, intentionally coming after to, so but, we can blame her for the entire thing. Not blame. <laughs> I'm just saying this this poor kid is being used as a as a transport. Uh-huh. Uh yeah, so then we go to the web between the worlds and I wanted to say something interesting here. Uh well I wanted to notice something interesting in the chapter. I'm not sure what I'm going to say is going to be interesting to anyone else, but um I think it's notable that the very first time we're introduced to the Wood Between Worlds way back in Chapter 3. Uh, we have this moment where Polly and Diggory kind of have to remember who they are and why they're there in the first place. And any subsequent time that we've gone back there, they're immediately aware, like they've lost nothing. Like this time they come into it and they're just like, we know why we're here, we got to get the rings, we got to get out and leave uh, uh, Jada's here. Like there's no lag uh, and, and that happens again the first time they go in with Jadis, where they're just like, no, we're getting away from her. We need to get back home. This memory sync seems to happen only uh, to people the first time they're in this space, I guess. I don't think that I agree with that because Uncle Andrew doesn't have the memory sync. Okay. And the cabbie doesn't seem to. The cabbie is tending to Strawberry. Yeah. yeah. I think what it is is community, that there are other people there. When Polly is there alone... Uh-huh. She forgets everything. She doesn't have anything to be attentive to. Uh-huh. And Diggory, when he gets there, also, he traveled here alone. Uh-huh. And arrived alone. And is like, I, I might have been here forever. Mm-hmm. And then it's upon talking with Polly that she says, no, you showed up after me. You just got here. Like, oh, I think I remember a boy with your dirty face. Like, okay, I think I've got this. And then every time they've traveled after that, they've traveled together. Uh-huh. And so when they're traveling together, everyone who's traveling together seems to bring with them a greater sense of identity and, and personal awareness into yeah. the wood. I've, I feel like there's a part of it that is just the, the isolation of being alone in that place. Uh-huh. That allows them to just settle into the peace of that environment. Okay. Um, or as you would say, the identity stripping nature of it because you find it much more depressing. Yes, I do. Um, but for me, it's, it is a, a peaceful environment. Uh-huh. And I feel like being there alone allows them to settle into that. And it is, it is the coming together okay whether you are ha- aware of other beings that is drawing them out of the piece of it all yeah. 
Okay. We, we, we will just always fundamentally disagree about the nature of the wood. Um, but so this happens and we don't spend very much time here at all. And I feel like there's something important here that's left unsaid because as soon as we get here, we're leaving almost immediately. Like we get here and Strawberry's thirsty and the cabbie is trying to, you know, tend to the horse because Strawberry has now calmed down and then realizes horse is thirsty, gonna go get a drink. But then the horse never gets his drink, and that's why I included this sentence in my summary, was just to show how fast this all happens. Mm. Um, and I think that's interesting because they don't go right back into the Earth pool. Like, they come out of the pool from Earth. They're there. Basically, no time passes. We don't even get the horse a chance to get a drink. Their plan is to go right back in and leave Jadis in the wood between worlds because she's powerless there. And she can't get out. And they turn around, go back into a pool, and suddenly they're not back at Earth. So, um, what I think happened is that the horse touched a different pool. And mm -hmm. Diggory said something like, what good luck. And I think that he, for some reason, thought that Strawberry had gotten into the charm pool. And they were trying to return her to Charn. But even then, like, I'm not 100%. I agree with you that it's a little weird that they that they had, like, planned to get there and go away. Uh-huh. But also, like, all of them got transported. Yes. So he was still holding on to the witch's heel. Yeah. And it says that he was still holding on when they switched the rings. Uh-huh. So he was still trying to take her somewhere. Yeah. So I think that they were trying to take her back to Charn. Okay. Yeah, and it just like doesn't he really... was just like, "What good luck that the horse has gone into a nearby pool." Yeah. All right. Yeah, I, I guess I, I read that differently, and I, I thought the whole plan was to leave her in the wood. Uh, I, I thought that yeah. that was the plan that he had made as well, but also he wouldn't have continued to hold on to her heel. I mean, it specifically yeah. says that he's still holding on to her heel when he changes ranks. Yeah. Uh, and so this all happens very, very quickly. And then we find ourselves in... Uh, nothing, capital N. Nothing, capital N, which I I disagree with, like, semantically, because if it's nothing, how are they standing on something? And it, there's obviously something there. It was uncommonly <sighs> like nothing, uh -huh. the narrator says. Uh-huh. And immediately Jadis is very disturbed by this place they found themselves in. And the first thing I think she says when they get here is, uh, I've met my doom or something like that. She is just like immediately hopeless. Like she's this very strong, uh, willful character in all these situations. And unless we go to the wood between the worlds, in which case she's lost all of her strength and she's sickly and she can barely move. But now we've come to this new place where she's immediately aware again, but like, this is it. It's my doom. I'm dead. Well, and she, it specifically says that the magic here is different from hers and stronger than her. Yes. So the magic that she's encountering in this nothing world mm -hmm. is stronger than her. And yeah. it's something that she has admitted, like... I have, I have, this isn't even my match. This is stronger than me. And mm -hmm. like you said, I've met my doom. Mm -hmm. I feel like this is a good point to talk about uh, one of my new favorite characters in the book, who is the cabbie. Um, because he I has, knew you would love the cabbie. He has a really interesting reaction to this place uh, because he is convinced that we've fallen down a hole into some new subway tunnel that they're building. Well, uh, what else <laughs> is he supposed to think? What else is he supposed to think? He has had. No, no idea. And he took, like, from his perspective, he's comforting the horse, and suddenly the horse calms down. Uh -huh. And it isn't until the horse goes to take a drink that he's had enough of a focus shift to even, like, not realize that, like, he's not on Earth anymore. Uh -huh. And before the horse even has a drink, they're in this blackness. Yeah. They've fallen into blackness. Uh-huh. And now he's like, well, the only thing I can use to explain this is I was comforting the horse and then we were in blackness. Yeah. Like, and, maybe uh, we fell into a subway tunnel. And he has a really fascinating reaction to this uh, where he's just like, oh, well, we aren't dead. And uh, well, even if we are, I guess we're, you know, weirder things have happened. He says something like that. 
like stranger things happen at sea. The worst uh, things happen at sea. The worst things happen at sea, which I feel like gives him important backstory. Maybe he was a sailor before he was a cabbie. Who knows what, what his his deal is. I think um, it's also interesting that early in the chapter, before they've put on the rings the first time while they're still in London, the cabbie is described as like the most kind person. Uh-huh. And like the most gentle and kind person. Yeah. Which is interesting. And he starts singing this hymn. And I am 98% sure that I have found the hymn that he was singing here, okay. uh, which I would like to, to share part of because I feel like it, it, it does say something interesting that Lewis chose this one. Uh, and so the hymn that he is singing is called Come Ye Thankful People Come. And I brought up the, the lyrics to this. And it was a, it's an older hymn. Had written in uh, 1868, I believe. Uh, and you can look this up yourselves on Wikipedia. And it is a song about bringing the harvest in and uh, God our maker providing. But the last verse of this I think is interesting as foreshadowing for what's coming. Uh, the last verse is, Then thou church triumphant come, raise the song of harvest home. I'll be safely gathered in, free from sorrow, free from sin, there forever purified, in God's garner to abide, come ten thousand angels come, raise the glorious harvest home. And this is the last verse that he's singing in this hymn. And then that transitions into they start hearing singing. Mm-hmm. So the last verse of this is calling... Uh-huh. the church to sing yes and then they start hearing a voice yeah. singing and come town come ten thousand angels which as the first of her voice starts to sing uh-huh. it is joined all of a sudden by thousands of other much higher voices in the exact instant that all of these thousands of thousands of stars uh-huh. appear in the sky yeah and you would be certain that as, as it said in the chapter, like, Diggory would... If you had heard it, you would be certain that it was the stars singing. The stars singing. Um, and so we have found ourselves in the world, in a world in the process of creation. Mm. Uh, which is which is a really fun uh, imagery. So let's, let's dive into that a little bit. I love when we're talking about the imagery, we've talked about... Charn being this old world with an old son. Mm-hmm. Our world having a much younger son. And then this world, as the sun begins to rise for what we assume is the first time, mm-hmm. it is described even younger and you, than our world. You could almost hear it laughing with joy. Yes. As it rose over the horizon. Um, and so this is a brand new world that is just being created and where they found themselves. And... I feel like this is a, a a good time to draw a parallel between creation myths and literature because Lewis, as many of you I'm sure know, was uh, very close friends with J.R.R. Tolkien. And I feel like there's a lot of similarity between this creation story that we have in this chapter and the creation mythos of the Lord of the Rings universe. Uh, and I'm, I'm not sure how much of that you're have looked into Kristen but well it's funny that you go immediately to Tolkien and other creation myths in literature mm-hmm. with like fantasy and things like that because I went to the Christian creation story of um the kind of let there be light and there was light and then the stars and the mm-hmm. heaven to divide the day and the night the stars yeah. to govern the night and the sun to govern the day yeah. so I went immediately into this where we've got this earth that they finally can see below them that has no plants, uh-huh. but they've got water, ground, stars, and sun. Uh-huh. And I'm assuming that as we progress, we will see a similar to the to the six day Genesis one creation story, mm-hmm. where we're then going to have plants and then animals and then uh, mankind or something along those lines. So. This, that's where my head went when I started reading this, as opposed to going to uh, yeah. Tolkien. But go ahead and, 
and and draw your parallel with Tolkien. Uh, I mean, that's an obvious uh, discussion point as well, and we'll we'll get there. Uh, but in the the Tolkien mythos, Middle Earth mythos specifically, yeah, uh, God God in that mythos, uh, Eru Iluvatar, and I'm sure I'm not pronouncing that exactly correctly, and some Lord of the Rings nerds will correct me on that. Nerd. Uh huh. But the the basis of creation in that universe is song. And the universe is created by God beginning this song and creating the Valar and the Maiar and essentially the angels to join him in this eternal chorus. And and that's the first thing that happens in the creation as described in the Cermarillion is that, you know, God creates all these angels, they join him and they start this eternal song which makes everything else. Mm. And then you have... I'm, I did miss that parallel. Uh-huh. Because I definitely didn't didn't emphasize the uh, the song element of it so much as the word and the voice. Uh-huh. But yeah, no, that's cool. Um, okay, go ahead. And within that mythos, uh, you have uh, this imagery that evil arises as discordant notes. Okay. Uh, and and evil are are, are verses uh, that that don't fit in with the rest of the song. And are out of tune, mm. and it's this really, uh, this really cool imagery that I've always thought, and an interesting way to tell a creation tale. Uh, but I feel like there's a very strong parallel here, obviously. Yeah. Mm. Oh, absolutely. And I think I find the use of the cabbie's song mm-hmm. that immediately leads into this creation song uh-huh. to be a very interesting element as well of this story. Uh huh. Um. I don't know what it is about something within the cabbie needed to sing. Mm-hmm. And out of that, we also have this this whole place like singing. The stars are singing. The sun is laughing. Like everything is coming up from the earth in song. Uh-huh. And I feel like there's just a resonance there within the cabbie that even before he knew that there was a song of creation being sung around him, uh-huh. he was being called to sing, uh-huh. if that makes sense. And like there's, there's, I don't even want to call it foreshadowing. It's just uh, striking similar chords, <laughs> musical references where when the cabbie is doing this hymn, we have the children joining in and they're singing with him. Yeah. And specifically Jadis and Uncle Andrew do not join in. And then this new song starts and it's the most beautiful noise, you know, the children have ever heard. And Jadis is like, I don't like this. This is, this this is, this is magic that's stronger than mine. And this is different. And this is my doom. And Uncle Andrew also hates it. Yep. It says if he could have crawled into a rat's hole to get away from the music, he would have. Yes. So we can understand kind of why Jadis hates it because she knows how much power is there and it's obviously stronger than her. Why does Uncle Andrew hate this music? I think that it has to do with the same thing where he, you know, he has done horrible things in the name of acquiring magic. And the same, you know, all of these parallels that we've drawn between Jadis and Uncle Andrew in previous episodes Uh where we've talked about these parallels between the two of them Uh that just exist as like unifying elements of their characters yeah this is just an extension of that Uh uh-huh where all of the things that make jadis a terrible person and make her hate this place are all the same things that have led uncle andrew to be a terrible person and to and to hate this place Uh uh-huh it i mean it's that magician's mark on him that the queen can see yeah and like basically every everything we hear from Uncle Andrew in this chapter is him just wanting to leave or like, wanting a drink. He asks the cabbie if <laughs> he, he does ask the cabbie for a drink, which the you know the Uncle Andrew is an alcoholic thing is getting a bit heavy handed at this point because <laughs> I, I feel like not every line of his has to start with him asking for a drink. But we um, also have the moment where Uncle Andrew tries to pull Diggory aside, and Diggory has this pinching at his elbow and the strong <laughs> scent of brandy and cigars. Mm-hmm. And then realizes, oh, that must be Uncle Andrew. <laughs> yep. There you go. Um, but yeah, it's him wanting to escape, and he tries to conspire with Diggory first, and he's just like, 
come on, now my boy, now's the chance for us to get out of here and screw everybody else, we're leaving them behind. And then when we're in this new world, he kind of changes his tune and he's like, well, I'm going to go over and agree with Jadis and be like, oh yeah, this is a terrible place. We need to leave. Let's get out of here. And he's just trying to ingratiate himself to everyone. Uh, so we have Jadis and Uncle Andrew who really, really want to leave. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we have... They An- suddenly get to see the one who's singing. Yes. We enter Aslan. You're assuming it's Aslan. <laughs> And you're assuming this is Narnia. I mean, it's a big lion. All right. There's how many lions are there in this story, really? What's chapter nine's title? Uh, crap, chapter nine is the creation of Narnia, the I believe. Founding the founding of Narnia. Of Narnia. Uh-huh. So, yes. We have introed Aslan. Uh-huh. Aslan. Who doesn't get any dialogue. Uh, Except for singing. singing. Yeah. Um, and he's there. And there he be. And... Uncle Andrew wants to shoot him. If I was younger and had a gun. <laughs> which which I don't get as a line because, like, if you have a gun, does it matter how old you are? Don't they work the same way pretty much regardless of your, your youth? But... I don't know. I think he's just afraid that he has unsteady hands. Uh, and he wouldn't possibly. be able to make the shot the first time and he would die before a second attempt. Yeah. You know, that said, his unsteady hands are probably the result of his alcoholism <laughs> more so than his age, but, you know. And then the cabbie's just like, you would shoot him. And then, <laughs> uh, yeah, and then Polly kind of responds, uh, I um, I don't know if you remember these reactions of the children in uh, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, but when they meet Aslan, they're just like, he is a wonderful creature. He's amazing. They're awestruck and dumbfounded just by his presence in this, like, awe-inspired way. Uh-huh. And the the people that are afraid of him and, and violent towards him are the ones who have, are, are the ones like, you know, like, the witch. Uh-huh. And, like, Edmund, when he's been influenced by her and things like that. So we have that same moment here where Andrew and Jadis are both reacting against Aslan as fear and hate and anger uh-huh. and intimidation and violence. And the rest of them are just interacting as awe. Uh-huh. You would shoot him? How could How could anyone do anything except love and respect him? Uh-huh. Even the horses, you know, Strawberry is all aboard this. He's stamping his feet and being yeah. excited, I guess. I don't I don't know what horses do when they're excited, but I that's how I took it. <laughs> um, it. It doesn't say he's, like, neighing and joining in in the song, but... Hmm. But he does seem to be, you know, not intimidated, but more delighted. Yeah. And... Uh, and, and when when was it that he was said that they said you could tell that his father had been in battle? Yeah, when when this some somewhere when this song starts happening and we have the daylight and you know it, we can see the horse and he looks very proud and strong and so the yeah. song has affected him. So we had the witch influencing him to be angry and violent, and then they get to the wood between the worlds and he immediately calms. Uh huh. And then we get into this song of of creation yeah. in what we are gonna call Narnia because the next chapter title has yeah. kind of given it away for us a little bit um, spoilers for next week yeah I guess <laughs> and so we've gotten now to Narnia air quotes and strawberry is just pride filled and in in a moment of glory almost uh-huh uh, so yeah, that's that's what happens in the chapter. Uh, any other thoughts you want to add in and, and interesting things that happened? or? I mean, I feel like we touched on everything that I really wanted to talk about. Oh, wait, wait, wait. We didn't get to, uh, I guess, kind of the crux of the, the end of this chapter where uh, Polly and Diggory threaten everybody. So. Ah, well, there is that. Uh-huh. But, no, yeah, no, I think we talked about everything <laughs> I wanted to talk about, but let's go ahead and touch on that, where 
where Diggory is suddenly emboldened uh-huh. when the when the witch hears Uncle Andrew say, "Put on your ring," and she goes, "Oh, it's rings." It's rings. Faster than you can say knife. She would have had her hand in his pocket. But he grabs Polly and pulls away from them all and threatens, says, we will disappear. All of you stay away from us. Sorry to the cabbie and to, whore, and to the horse, to Strawberry. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And we like have this moment of almost a hostage situation where, where Diggory and Polly have taken everybody hostage. Yeah. Now, my question is, do we know if Diggory and Polly both still have their rings? Do we have two sets of rings here or not? Well, when we're in the wood between the worlds, uh, Diggory shouts something about rings. He says rings now or something like that. He just, no, he shouts green. Green. Okay. Yeah. He just shouts the color. What about in this very last bit that we just mentioned where they talk about the rings and Jadis is like, oh, it's rings. Well, also, prior to this... Mm-hmm. Uncle Andrew is whispering to Diggory and mm-hmm. says, put on your ring, boy. Uh-huh. And Jadis storms over being like, don't you know that I can hear the thoughts of men? At which point she has not figured out that it's a ring. Mm-hmm. So either she didn't hear him say ring uh-huh. or she did and didn't figure it out until the second time that in front of her has been said, put on your ring. Mm-hmm. Or she was just bluffing and just heard them whispering and decided to come over and threaten just in case they were planning something. Which is also an idea. Uh-huh. Uh, Consistent with her character. All right, but but going back and, and looking at that moment where, um, where Polly does yell out that they need to, to put on greens, she says greens, plural. Mm-hmm. So it probably means that they both do still have their rings, but we don't actually know that. Yeah, would seem that way. Uh, so before we get to our final thoughts on the chapter here and uh, give it a, a star rating. Star rating? Or, no, uh, thousands and thousands of stars? Thousands well, of thousands of I stars? I haven't actually come up with it yet, but we'll get there. Uh, we do this thing on our podcast where we go back through the chapter and we pick out sentences to tell a new story with. And it's also what do we do to it? We 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 chop and screw it. We chop and screw it. <laughs> and we pick out five sentences, nailing it down. Five sentences again. They don't have to be the same ones, but we retell it and try to make our own story out of what's already there. Um, so, so, um, <laughs> since you did your summary first, I'll go ahead and do my my rewrite first. Excellent. And here we go. But the witch looked as if, in a way, she understood the music better than any of them. Then came the voice of the witch, clear like a great bell, and sounding as if, for once, she were almost happy. God, said the cabbie, ain't it lovely? A flush of color came into the witch's face, and she bowed ever so slightly. For the song had now changed. Hmm... I didn't catch that her voice was described like a bell. That's mm-hmm. a musical element. Mm-hmm. Interesting. So, so we I, also had her awoken by a bell, mm-hmm. by the tolling of a bell, a single note that broke the enchantment. Uh huh. Even on Charn, yeah. a, a single musical note had the magical power to break an enchantment that had her sleeping. Mm-hmm. Well, That's. Yeah. That's so cool. I mean, like that's that's a music as a consistent magical element uh-huh. across the 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 worlds of Charn and and as the characters feel they need to sing coming into this empty place, and as this place is being founded with music and as a creation element, love it. Sorry, um, but your story <laughs> about people singing and magic and music. Uh, and yeah, I decided to keep the musical theme of the chapter and just kind of re- redo the players here. And I had this, uh, this idea of this very, uh, intimate moment as it were between Jadis and the cabbie. I, I like it. <laughs> I like what you've done because you've also taken the actual chapter in light of your rewrite. Mm-hmm. The witch is 
a a magic user. Yes. She is a magician, a witch. She is capable of manipulating the music. And she and in your story, mm. all of this music is coming from her and it's it's bewitching or ensorcelling or just enthralling the the cabbie mm-hmm. in this way. But then you also have like evidence earlier in the book that she has used music in her magic. Yeah. Well, we have the deplorable word as well, which is this thing she spoke and destroyed the whole world. Yeah. So that's a sonic element as well. Um, yes. And then the, the the weird language word that she used to destroy the door that didn't work on the on on Aunt, Aunt Letty. Aunt Letty. Uh-huh. That didn't work on Aunt Letty. So we do. Yeah, I agree. But I really, your story is fun because it is definitely this intimate moment between two people. And I like what you did with it where she was like blushing in response to the cabbie and stuff like that. I like, I like what you did with that. And I like what your story makes me see in the book as a whole that I hadn't noticed before. Thank you. Which is part of our goal. Yeah. What is your story? My story... Is much less whims- uh, positively whimsical. Okay. But is it French? <laughs> the angry, frightened voices were silenced. My doom has come upon me, said the witch, in a voice of horrible calmness. You could see she felt deadly sick. Is it the end? I'd have been a better man all my life if I'd known there were things like this. Ooh, okay. So you you also kind of did Jadis and the cabbie. I, I mean, here. I wasn't intending it to be the cabbie necessarily. That's yeah. the cabbie's line. Yes. But mm-hmm. what I was doing was trying to take all of the hellish descriptions of this. Uh-huh. Where, like, I originally had started with, like, but it was a valley of mere earth, rock and water. There was not a tree, not a bush, not a blade of grass to be seen. Mm-hmm. That was originally going to be one of my sentences. Yeah. Because I was just trying to take all of these darkness and nothing elements to build a world of just like hellish darkness. Mm-hmm. And kind of end it with this reflection of I'd have been a better man all my life if I'd known there were things like this. Yeah. Where he's where there's just a person reflecting against all of the the torment and hellishness, being like, Well, if I had known that there was something this dark, I would have tried to be a better person to yeah. avoid it. Mm-hmm. And so that was where I was going with that. But um but yeah, no, I I, I definitely was not necessarily going for something yeah, but yeah, I mean, <laughs> lighthearted yeah. and yeah. romantic. It's definitely thematic, and and yeah, I, I I like that, and it looks at kind of the darker, brooding side of this, which is a a nice twist on what ultimately is a very hopeful chapter. Yeah, I mean, uh, it's a chapter of beauty and creation. Uh huh. You you would go the dark side. Well, it's just these elements are present in the chapter. Uh-huh. It is just, and I think that that's part of what makes this creation so inspiring inspiring to the children where they are in this darkness Mm -hmm. and there is light being introduced yeah and for them it's just this moment of like oh wow and then for the witch she is like very much in this moment of like my doom has come upon me and she Mm -hmm. says it in a voice of horrible calmness she's resigned herself and then um you know, you could see that she felt deadly sick. That was from the, the wood between the worlds. But, you know, they, they've they come into this place, this new environment, this new world. Mm-hmm. And I don't know. what did, Does this bring any other reflections for you on the chapter? Uh, any any other ones? Uh, I mean, I think you pretty well covered it. And you really explored uh, Jadis' reaction to this. I'm I'm curious as to what's going to happen to her in the next chapter. Um, we'll see. Uh, I kind of want to go read it, but you know we'll save that for next week <laughs> because uh, I I feel like she's almost afraid here, mm. and uh, I, I feel like she's a person that hasn't felt fear in a very very long time. Agreed. And so it'll be interesting to see how she reacts to that. 
submit your rewrites of the chapter to us. Uh, hashtag Narnia chopped and screwed. <laughs> and uh, you can do that uh, at Chronically Podcast on Facebook and Instagram or at Chronically Pod on Twitter. You can also email us uh, your rewritten stories or just your thoughts and reflections. Or your cabbie fan art. Or your cabbie and strawberry fan art <laughs> at chronicallypodcast at gmail.com. Mm-hmm. Um, any closing thoughts as we continue into our ratings? Uh, yeah, I usually save my closing thoughts for the rating system, and this is the segment that Kristen hates. Uh, this time I think we're going to be using... Um, Singing stars. You know, we'll go simple, do a star, star rating system, but they'll be singing this time. Uh, and we do, and at least I like to do it out of a, of a five-point system uh, and rate the chapter based on how well I think it did what it set out to do. Your and, pentangles. Yes, my pentangles. And I like this chapter. I think it's very thematically sound. It's very dense. In plot and a lot of stuff happens. I love the cabbie as a character. He's great. Um, I think we have a little bit of development for every single character in this chapter. Maybe less so Polly because she doesn't really do a whole heck of a lot other than be a vehicle for other people to get to the woods. But, and be a brick. And be a brick. She's a brick. There's, she's, there's her character development. She, she comes out and saves the day. Um, but yeah, everybody gets a little bit of character moment and we get to see, you know, the the creation of a world, which is something fun to see in a chapter always. You know, when, whenever that comes up in, like, you know, cookbooks or whatever you might happen to be reading, <laughs> it's, uh, it's great. And so I'd rate this one very highly. I'm not going to say it's perfect because I'm holding off my perfect rating for some hypothetical chapter that doesn't exist. But I will give it 4.75 singing stars. Wow. Uh, that I think that is my highest rating yet. Wow. Mm-hmm. Wow. <laughs> wow. Wow. So, how about you, Kristen? I give this chapter a whole hymn. All the verses, huh? All the verses, including wow. the, the third verse, which everyone always skips. Uh. <laughs> I give the, I give this chapter a whole hymn. I, I agree with you. I feel like the world building, literally, <laughs> no. happening around them is stunning mm-hmm. i love this kind of creation as they are discovering that it's happening around them uh-huh. i love it and i i definitely i feel like this chapter started a little rough for me because it starts with like her bashing cops on the head in very much a like slapstick comedy kind of way Mm-hmm. But then it's like the moment that she kicks Diggory in the mouth and he starts bleeding uh-huh. and he's got blood in his mouth and his lip is split, which isn't brought up again. Nope. Um, but through all of this, he's bleeding out of his face. Mm-hmm. Um, once he gets kicked, that's when the chapter starts for me being a, a, a consistent and a theme and weight and emotional yeah. like plot development as opposed to this kind of slapstick little pop you on the head uh-huh. and he crumpled you know and he uh-huh. fell like a nine pin <laughs> nine and pen. things like that um that happened in the first couple paragraphs mm-hmm. um so yeah basically you're a brick is where it starts actually being the chapter for me so yeah oh. all right well uh we look forward to you joining us next week for chapter nine, uh, the founding of Narnia. Spoilers, that's where we're going with this whole thing. Narnia is kind of the, the central element here. You mean like in the very first <laughs> paragraph of the first chapter when it said this is how all the comings of goings of Narnia first began? Yeah, but now we're actually getting there. Okay. Uh, but yeah, now we're, we are more than halfway through the book now. We are in the down slope and we're going to go into the book that everybody actually knows and it's cares about. It's all downhill from here. All downhill from here. Um, so that being said, this is my co-host... Kristen. And I'm a very thirsty strawberry. (laughs) And uh, we will see you next week. Thank you. There are Spartans wall. There are Sparta's walls, he replied, pointing to. 
There are Sparta's walls. We enter Aslan. 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 They meet Aslan against Aslan. This is it. It's my doom. I'm dead. I think it's... I've always thought my horse impression was pretty good. That's more of a like, unicorn. And now you're going to goat. <laughs> oh, I can do a pigeon. What about your elephant, though?